Okay, the ties that bind. So, as the uh, episode menu on the DVD indicates, the original production title for this episode was Miracles Happen. It was also apparently going to be called Escape Velocity at one point. Bruce Tim likes titles that have a double meaning. The ties that bind obviously refers to Mr. Miracle escaping uh, traps and bindings, but also on the, you know, on the metaphorical level, the phrase refers to the relationships between the characters. Similarly, escape velocity refers to Flash's speed and also Mr. Miracle escaping from various traps. For that reason, perhaps Miracles Happen didn't really appeal to him. I kind of have to wonder exactly why they're doing this stunt. Because right in the middle of nowhere, there's no audience. Is he paying someone to drop a train on him? If so, it doesn't seem like a very good business model. One of the things that I like about this episode is that it really brings a diverse cast together to reprise roles that they did on other shows. You've got uh, Ed Asner, of course, who's terrific as Granny Goodness uh, from Superman the Animated Series. You've got Farrah Fork as Big Barda from uh, reprising her role from Batman Beyond. And you've got uh, Michael Dorn, who was uh, who played Calabac on Superman and in earlier seasons of Justice League. And, of course, this episode is noteworthy for the fact that it was the first episode of JLU to feature The Flash in a speaking role. I, I'm still, uh, I still think we're in the dark as to why he didn't appear at all in the first season of, uh, of JLU, and of season three, depending on how you number it, but instead didn't appear until now in season four. Uh, speculation was at one point that it was because uh, Michael Rosen- Rosenbaum was too busy with Smallville or that he was too busy doing reshoots for a, a movie that he was making or that uh, they just didn't have any good Flash stories in, in, uh, in the last season, that they just didn't come up with any and it just happened that way. But uh, for whatever reason, it just worked out that way. So as we're going to see once we come back from the main titles here, this episode was written by Steranko. Steranko was a groundbreaking comic book artist best known for his brief run on Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. And he dealt with a lot of adult subject matter, but... uh, more memorably, uh, his artistic style incorporated a lot of uh, new artistic techniques, photography, and uh, and all sorts of new new ways other than just you know penciled and inked uh, pages like had like had was the norm for you know decades before. And in that sense, he was a little bit ahead of his time. But the reason why he was uh, an appropriate choice to write the story for this episode was that. Uh, when Jack Kirby was creating Mr. Miracle, his inspiration was Steranko's earlier job before he became a comic book artist, which was an escape artist. Here we're getting yet another reference to uh, what Apocalypse is like without Darkseid. Actually, I guess it's the first reference. We have a reference here to the planet sort of being in turmoil politically. 
and then there's another, uh, there's more later on in Question Authority with Mantis and so on. That they really seem to me to be setting up the return of Darkseid. So I'm glad they got to tell that story in, in Alive and Destroyer. Now, obviously, Ed Asner is great as uh, as Granny Goodness. Here, uh, Mr. Miracle, although he'd appeared in the background of several other episodes, going all the way back to Apocalypse Now, and also uh, appeared at the very end of Twilight Part 2, this is his first uh, appearance in a speaking role. Oh, he also appeared on Bruce's computer uh, when he was looking at the files on the JLU in The Call Part 1. Here, uh, Mr. Miracle is voiced by Joan Griffith, uh, probably best known as Mr. Fantastic from the Fantastic Four movies. He was also in King Arthur and Amazing Grace and a few other things. He's a, he's, he's a quite a good actor uh, based on other performances I've seen him give, but I always felt his performance here as Mr. Miracle was quite stiff. Um, here we've got the elongated man, of course, voiced by Jeremy Piven, referred to for the first time by his first name, Ralph. He's checking out fire there in the background, which is interesting because in the comics, <clears throat> Elongated Man is one of the most prominent, or was, one of the most prominent married superheroes. His wife, Sue, was practically a, an official member of the Justice League, even though she didn't have any powers, but they were so inseparable. It just kind of worked out that way. Uh, over the past few years, they've both died, but still, when people think of Elongated Man, they tend to think of him as being married, unlike, say, Superman, who, although he is married these days, that's not the sort of iconic version of him that people think of. Elongated Man, the classic Elongated Man, is, you know, the ductile detective with his uh, loving wife, Sue, following him around and helping out in his adventures. So I'm surprised they had him checking out other women here. I'm not surprised they didn't work Sue into a story, but I am surprised that they would play against type, so to speak, in such a, a blatant way. Yeah, but to get back uh, to what I was saying, I've always felt that uh, Griffith's performance as uh, Mr. Miracle here was quite stiff. True, he has to deliver some rather banal lines and the reason for that is that Bruce Timm was trying to ape Jack Kirby dialogue to a more uh, obvious extent than they had done in the past. Some of the lines, like you insufferable showboat and things like that, are, are pure Kirby. And Bruce Timm has said he was even tempted to have the actors put the emphasis on the wrong words occasionally, which is one of uh, Jack Kirby's little quirks. Uh, but unlike some of the other actors, uh, Joanne Griffith seemed to have a lot of trouble with some of these lines and things like uh, they don't call me Mr. Ner Miracle for nothing or now we make miracles or something like that. They're quite corny lines, but when you're voicing a superhero, you have to be able to deliver good lines and occasionally sort of corny action hero lines. And if you can't do both, then you're probably miscast. I like the shot like this. It really gives a sense of how big Calabac is because we see him get his ass handed to him so many times. We forget how physically imposing he can be. One of the things I, I didn't mention earlier, uh, when Ralph says to Flash, I've been doing this as long as you have, uh, when you think back to Superman the Animated Series, when uh, about a third of the way into the run, you had Flash showing up as an established hero, 
if Elongated Man has been doing this for longer than The Flash, that would seem to indicate he's been around almost as long as Superman has. And if that's true, it's surprising that, as he says, the League treats him so shabbily. Treats him like comic relief. If he'd been around that long, you think he would get a bit more respect from them. So Mr. Miracle debuted, not surprisingly, in Mr. Miracle number one. Uh, April 1971. His relationship with his wife, Barda, was based, obviously, somewhat loosely, but still in terms of the uh, the emotional content, was based on Kirby's relationship with his own wife, Roz, uh, with whom, to whom he was married for many, many years, and, uh, and apparently they were quite inseparable. Um, I'm surprised that this episode doesn't go into Mr. Miracle's parentage, given that they made such a big deal of the pact in Apocalypse Now, where Highfather and Darkseid traded their infant sons, they play that up with Orion quite a bit, but this episode never out-and-out states that Mr. Miracle is in fact Highfather's biological son, who was traded with Darkseid for his biological son, Orion. So whereas Orion was raised on New Genesis by Highfather in a loving environment, Hence, he was able to somewhat overcome his biology and become a hero. Mr. Miracle was raised on Apocalypse. As soon as Darkseid uh, received him from Highfather, he basically foibled him off on Granny Goodness to raise in her, uh, to raise in her horrible orphanage, uh, one of Granny's terror orphanages, I believe they were called. Um, Darkseid apparently had no desire to raise him himself. Uh... Granny was obviously, as this episode shows, unable to break his his spirit, and eventually he escaped, made his way to Earth. Uh, there he met a man named Thaddeus Brown, the first Mr. Miracle, who was an aged escape artist. When Thaddeus Brown was killed, Scott Free took the mantle of Mr. Miracle himself and began working with Thaddeus Brown's uh, manager, Oberon. And the two of them eventually became quite good friends. Uh, the problem being that when Scott escaped from Apocalypse, he rendered null the treaty that had been established when Darkseid and Highfather had traded their infant sons. With, uh, with Scott no longer on Apocalypse, in Darkseid's eyes, the treaty was no longer valid, and he was free to attack New Genesis. This led to the big conflict in Kirby's uh, Fourth World interconnected series. Uh, before he had left Apocalypse, uh, Scott met Barda, who at the time was being groomed to be the leader of Granny's Female Furies, which is her all-female strike team that we saw back in Apocalypse Now that included Lashina and Stampa and Matt Harriet. Uh, eventually, Barda followed Mr. Miracle to Earth, and the two were married. Eventually, Mr. Miracle became a member of the Giffen de Mateus-era Justice League, and Oberon sort of became the team's unofficial manager, Barda, for her part, appeared in the fourth issue of the Mr. Miracle series in October 1971. Uh, she ended up joining the Justice League 2 eventually under Grant Morrison's tenure when both Barda and Orion were assigned to Earth by the new Highfather Tachyon to help protect it from the imminent threat of Mageddon, which was a weapon created by the old gods, not the new gods, of which all of these Kirby characters are, but the, the, uh, the gods of 
a previous iteration of the universe had created Megiddo as a sort of doomsday weapon, and it had slipped its chains, to borrow a phrase, and、uh, and was making its way towards Earth. And High Father assigned Barda and Orion to Earth as protectors, and that, it was in that way that they eventually joined the Justice League. Recently, Barda has become an active member of the Birds of Prey, along、uh, under Oracle's supervision and alongside Huntress and. The new Manhunter and the new Judo Master, among others. Someone on the message boards made mention that this episode is kind of like a video game, and they don't—they didn't mean that in a good way.、Uh, what they meant was that the pacing of this episode has a lot of filler in it. The characters arrive on Apocalypse; they fight a bunch of Bad guys. They walk into the building. They fight a bunch of bad guys. They free Calabac. They fight a bunch of bad guys.、And、it just goes on like that for 22 minutes. So while there is some good stuff in here, I'm not sure this story really justified a full 22-minute episode when you consider that about half the running time is just these few characters fighting faceless bad guys. It would be different if they were fighting, you know, the female Furies or or. Or if you know the good guys were fighting Calabac, or there was something there with some some more meat to it, some emotional resonance, but they're just fighting these robots or the demon dogs or whatever, and it's not you know terribly exciting. Vermin Vunderbar appeared in Mister Miracle Number Five in December of nineteen seventy one. Apparently, he was given his name by Granny Goodness, who I suppose must not have liked him very much. But it's still a very Kirbyish type name. A lot of the backgrounds in this episode were、uh, painted by Drew Johnson. And he really captured a lot of the、uh, the Kirby flair, just the the blockiness of some of it, and the the design elements. And and if you look closely in the background,、uh, a lot of the time in the、uh, the X pit in the present, not here in the past, you'll see little statues to Darkseid in quite a few places. It was partly for that reason that I became convinced that they were going to bring Darkseid back sooner rather than later. Because they just seem to be sort of shoving it in your face so much that oh you know Darkseid's missing and look at what's happening on Apocalypse. It just cried out for resolution, and eventually we did get it. And in fact, this episode served to set that up quite well because it set up that there was this power struggle. And so when Darkseid reappeared and alive, and we saw Granny Goodness's forces facing off against Vermin Vunderbars, we we understood you know the import of Darkseid returning. We understood that it meant. That apocalypse would be unified again and would become a true threat, as Jean says in this episode. The fact that the various factions on apocalypse are warring with each other means that they can't turn their attention to other places to invade, like Earth.
Another complaint that uh, some people had with this episode's episode is that we hear we keep hearing about how Mr. Miracle is such a great escape artist and we keep seeing him perform these incredible stunts like he somehow gets out of here and and we see him you know dodging the laser beams and the flashback and so on but it would so, someone said that it would really sell the fact that he's a fantastic escape artist if we were to actually see how he escaped from something like at the beginning when he's encased in the the armor and is frozen and he's having a huge train dropped on him and then suddenly he's okay. It feels like a cheat every time. And if we were to see him get out of one of these things, the character would kind of earn our respect and we'd, you know, we'd feel a bit more of a connection to him. Whereas he, he kind of comes off as a bit of a cipher in this episode because we never actually see how he does the thing that is his main thing. Vermin Vandebar is voiced by Artie Johnson, uh, best known from an old comedy show called Laugh-In. His performance here is largely a nod to that performance, or at least the reason he was cast is largely due to that other performance, where he, one of his main recurring roles was a, uh, a bumbling Nazi officer who would uh, be known to say, very interesting, and things like that, so... They cast him in this role largely because of that, and he got to throw in and ad-lib a few lines that, uh, that made the connection even tighter. At the time, a lot of people uh, didn't like this episode, and there's, there's quite a few things not to like, truth be told. There's also quite a bit to like. Uh, although a lot of people kind of forgave its faults because it was the first time we'd seen The Flash in such a long time. Uh, just having him around and having him do his thing and, and him being funny and charismatic like he is uh, sort of made a lot of people gloss over the, the faults of the episode and judge it solely uh, by those few other merits. Here we have another scene where the characters fight more faceless robots for a couple of minutes. I wonder why they gave Barda her full armor here, but back when they did the call, they just had her walking around in her little bikini outfit. In the comics, she has both. She sort of, you know, the bikini outfit is kind of everyday wear, but the uh, the armor here is for battle. Certainly the armor looks cooler. Apparently Vermin Vunderbar has a little flying hot rod convertible there. Yet another dark side statue. I remember this episode aired uh, just before I left for a vacation, and the Doomsday Sanction aired while I was on vacation. So when I came back, I watched both episodes back-to-back, 
and uh, talk about night and day in terms of, I don't want to say in terms of quality. I don't want, I don't want to be too harsh in this episode. There's a lot of stuff to like about it. But purely from an objective standpoint, uh, the Doomsday Sanction is just leaps and bounds better than this episode. And having a fun little episode like this and then watching the Doomsday Sanction right afterwards with all of its uh, revelations and, and foreshadowing and implications for the future and all the other stuff, it just uh, it makes for quite an interesting viewing experience. This also kind of furthers, although I, I kind of wonder how much of it was intentional at the time and how much of it was just a retroactive explanation, but for one reason or another, this episode continues to further Jean's development as becoming detached and uh, too wrapped up in the bureaucracy of running the League as opposed to uh, being involved in the actual lives of the little people, so to speak, and thinking about it from a human, or in this case, new god perspective, when Jean says, no, the power struggle must continue here, he's basically dooming the people of Apocalypse to wipe each other out, just so Earth won't need to get involved. And from a pragmatic standpoint, that might be the thing to do, but it doesn't seem very superheroish in that sort of hard-to-put-your-finger-on way, if you know what I mean. It doesn't seem very heroic. And so, later on, when they established that the other characters began to call Jean on that, and that he had that little arc, it was set up by stuff like this, however unintentionally. Although that's somewhat undermined, I suppose, by the fact that Flash disobeys Jean's orders here, and... John seems pretty okay with it. So that's the ties that bind. It's funny when you look at the uh, clips here of what's coming up, how they just completely eclipse what you just saw. Oh, I never noticed that before. At the bottom, where it said Superman created by, Wonder Woman created by, and Batman created by, it also said Mr. Miracle created by Jack Kirby. I remember them doing that back in uh, Superman the Animated Series, where they said, you know, Darkseid and the New Gods created by Jack Kirby, but I didn't, I never noticed that they did it here, too. That's cool. Thanks for listening.